Uh, Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel's summer teaching series on the book of Colossians. It's July 1st. Uh, We'll be studying tonight Christ, our relationship, unified and abounding. It's a short section, just 10 verses. We've pre-recorded this message for July 1st. Uh, Pastor Tim and Scott have done just a great job thus far, and uh, such a blessing to see it. And it's a new format, as Scott had said, so Pardon me for any misspeaking that I do. Tonight we'll be looking at two main points uh, from Paul's letter to the Colossians. We'll be looking at the encouragement to the Colossians to stand fast and keep their doctrine based on the Word of God. And secondly, he encourages them in the threefold unity of Christian believers, the unity with the Lord Jesus himself, the unity between the Father and the Son, and unity among themselves. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you'd like to read along. For I I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Let's go before the Lord in prayer, please. Father, we pray that you would be with us, Lord, this evening as we study your word in Colossians. Thank you for the encouragement which is in this letter. And I pray that it would be a blessing to our body and that we would keep these things in mind. Lord, give us your spirit to receive your word, Lord. Bless us through it, please. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the key verse of of tonight is of Colossians 2 is verses 2 and 3, speaking of certain believers, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so that's, that's going to be our key verse as we study this. We see that Paul wants to encourage the believers and have their hearts knit together in love. One way to illustrate biblical unity is to contrast it to worldly unity. Worldly unity is a matter of self-serving convenience. We've seen a lot of this in the mainstream media lately with the coronavirus. We've heard almost a, a form of collectiv- collectivism. Uh, when it first came out, you heard a lot of, we're all in this together, We've got to flatten the curve. The things that we're hearing now is it's going to be a dark winter uh, without a vaccine. And we've heard, we're all in this together ad nauseum. Uh, people actually started to show unity in un- unintended ways, though. People started to see the cure being worse than the, d- the disease. And Americans rebelled against unconstitutional restrictions, and they started to rebel against social distancing uh, with some of the beach restrictions. I don't know if anyone saw, but uh, one of the cities out in California had a public park 
that was bulldozed in with sand and to keep the people from skateboarding on it. And the citizens of California actually got together and emptied it out by buckets. So people had lost the fear of the coronavirus. It started to wear off. Um, unfortunately, then we had the unnecessary death of a man at the hands of police. It was convenient for the media. So two days later, after that happened, then we're all in this together turned into everyone's a racist and the police are to blame for everything. So we became more divided than ever, but that's how the world's unity works. We've seen a lot of our youth rioting as well, uh, which tells me that we haven't reached the youth with the Bible. It's a violation of Proverbs chapter one. When you see this much rioting and looting going on, Proverbs chapter 1.10 says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood, we shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. And all this rioting just to get new flat screen TVs and things like that. Now, certainly, I think most people agree that the gentleman uh, shouldn't have died at the hands of police. But I think we would all agree as well that you don't answer one injustice with another injustice, which is breaking people's property and smashing cars and attacking police and, and attacking uh, police vehicles and police stations and uh, robbing stores that had nothing to do with that. So, but I think a bigger problem is really that also in Proverbs chapter one, that we have lost the fear of the Lord as a nation. I think that's more of the, the issue that's at stake, but that's unity according to the world when we can benefit from something, then we might be unified, but it generally doesn't last long. In fact, over the past two weeks, we've seen Chaz taking control of Seattle. And if anybody could have gotten along, it would have been that socialist utopia, having a few blocks just to themselves, kicking the police out and everybody getting along. But as we saw, it didn't, it didn't work that way. Within two weeks, the whole thing broke down. There was violence, rape, looting, and shooting Sadly, one person was killed, and amazingly, the police were criticized for, not, for having a slow response time and not being able to get into an area where they were forbidden to go. So they were criticized for their, sl their slow response time, but they had been kicked out of that area anyway, so you really can't make this up. Uh, we've seen an exodus of businesses from Seattle now from that as well, and, and uh, hopefully some politicians would be held accountable for that. But that's the example of the world's unity. When it suits their purposes, when it suits their needs, there can be unity for a short term. Paul here, however, wants to encourage a people whom he has never met. He wants them knit together in love. He wants them grounded in Jesus the Messiah so that they would find the true riches therein. So the message is to protect the Colossian church from the teachings of the Gnostics in particular. The Gnostics were a people which value experience over text and feelings over truth. So as we know, there's nothing new under the sun. This is an attack on the word of God. Modern day Gnosticism, or I'm sorry, modern day mysticism, kind of new age mysticism, that's Gnosticism repackaged. So the question for us today is, do Paul's words have meaning? Is Gnosticism and mysticism still at work? The answer would be yes. Gnosticism has undergone name changes, but the attack is still the same seen and practiced in many evangelical churches. 
and it can account for the lukewarm state of the church and false converts today. When I was researching this, the best definition that I came across of, of Gnosticism and mysticism is the timeless quest for higher and hidden truth, spiritual experiences, and knowledge of God by using imagination, intuition, and so-called Holy Spirit revelations and subjective feelings rather than fact, re reason, and the undistorted word of God. So that's a very applicable definition, and it still applies today. I would venture to say a large portion of mysticism, New Age, neo-Gnosticism, all that is practiced in the churches today. In a nutshell, they teach that true salvation comes from inside, finding your true identity from within, or finding your inner God or divine spark. They teach that physical matter is bad and that the spiritual is good. It denies the goodness of the creator and the glory of his creation and denies the incarnation, resurrection, and the need for redemption. Uh, they created a being called the Demiurge, and this was the God of the Old Testament who is to blame for all the evil in the material world. world. And then there was another supreme being above him who is only interested in a spiritual reality and is not interested in what happens in physical creation. This, of course, contradicts scripture that says the Lord our God is one God. Freemasonry, that's a current example. They have a similar concept of Gnosticism. It's very impersonal. They have a grand architect of the universe or, or sort of an impersonal term like that. Uh, the G stands for Gnosis or in Freemasonry under the Masonic symbol. So there's, there's that bit about uh, knowledge that comes with this as well. And you also attain to levels. I'm not being critical of Freemasonry, but I do want to show it's, it's different from biblical Christianity. It, it does differ there. And there are some similarities with sort of Gnosticism and, um, and things like Freemasonry, other organizations as well, where you attain to certain levels. And that's what Gnosticism and, and uh, mysticism teaches. Tertullian said this regarding the Gnostic philosophy, philosophy creeping into the church. Now, if his death be denied... Because of the denial of his flesh, there will be no certainty of his resurrection. Similarly, if Christ's resurrection be nullified, ours also is destroyed. So Tertullian took the Gnostics on head on and, and showed how they uh, contradicted the Bible. A few other things that they teach, these will sound familiar to you, but a few other things. Body and material things are irrelevant, such as marriage is no longer defined between a man and a woman. In other words, it's no longer an institution of God. There's also no longer a distinction between male and female. In the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, it states, when you make the male and female one and the same, so that the male not be, not be male, nor the female female, then you, are, you will enter the kingdom. Also, human life is not precious, nor are humans created in God's image. Jesus is not the Son of God, nor is he fully man. He's a teacher or revealer of sorts, but he's not the Son of God, bringing salvation. And salvation is in enlightenment. Again, you go through these degrees of enlightenment, attaining to, to a higher and higher spiritual level, and you affirm the divine spark within so ultimate salvation is then leaving the body and the material world, and those who are enlightened go to the realm of light. That's their teaching. So some of this may sound familiar, marriage under attack, 
babies not being made in the image of God, all these things being irrelevant, uh, it may sound familiar today, male and female, that, that distinction being lost and everything kind of merging. We're see a lot, seeing a lot of this today. And this is part of the great conflict of which Paul was referring in verse 1. So Paul was engaging in battle for the Colossian church, and he's engaged in spiritual warfare for those whom he had never met even. And we pray for the word of God and good teaching for churches around the world in our own family and in this church as well. We want the word of God to go forth undistorted and not be contaminated by false teaching. Imagine for yourself if you had to move away and then also suppose Pastor Tim left and a hireling took his place, you would enter into spiritual conflict for this body, even if you didn't have that many connections still here, you would still pray for this body being attached. We all would, and we know how dangerous false teaching is. So again, this is why Paul would encourage in verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love and attaining to all riches and the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in, our who, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, your faith is complete in him. There's no need for other experiences beyond the Messiah himself living in you. And we know this from the word of God. One million dollar question for people that practice new age mysticism and things like that, Gnosticism and all of this, is how would you know if you had enough enlightenment to actually be saved? So that's why Paul goes through this to counter the deceptive words that sound spiritual. There's no further subjective revelation needed. The Old Testament confirms this as well. It states, the Lord states, am I not a God near at hand and not far off? That's Jeremiah 23. Also, he states, his word was made plain to the people. So you do still have to study, of course, and you have to be engaged in the word of God. But Paul is speaking against salvation by enlightenment and all of these subjective things. You have the word of God, and, and that's it. Even if you have a sense or a dream or a feeling, it still needs to be tested against the word of God. So we see Gnosticism or New Age spirituality contradicts the Bible from the very beginning. We have, we have a physical creation in Genesis. Everything is good, and God blesses it. We see the unity of the Father and Son, Genesis 1.26. We have God saying, in the singular, saying, let us make man in our image in a plural sense. We also see relative unity between God and man, and also between man and woman. So you see that unity there as well. In Genesis 3, we see the fall of man, and we see sin coming into the picture. Mysticism, Gnosticism, everything Paul was combating, it, it removes sin and it removes personal responsibility. So your, your salvation comes through enlightenment and things that you have to do to become enlightened rather than personally admitting your sin and taking personal responsibility. Churches have adopted this much in the West here as well. And we know we can't blame any other being for our own sin. You can't blame, blame the demiurge. You really can't even blame Satan. We have to take personal responsibility for our own action and our own sin. So a uh, big difference there. But this New Age philosophy has crept into the church. It's done two things. Like I said, it omits sin and it omits personal responsibility. So you're left with a bloodless, sacrifice-omitting, 
and a penalty-free religion. So you don't have the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. His blood really didn't need to be shed, and it's a penalty-free religion, no speaking of hell or anything like that. And many churches do teach this today. Many don't. I do thank the Lord for Pastor Tim's teaching, just always being faithful to the Word of God and all the elders and everything as well. Scott, Trevor, everyone trying to remain just as faithful as possible to the Word of God. We never want to deviate that, even if it's fashionable in this day and age. We don't want to deviate from that. And sin is sin. It has to be called out as, as that. So it's not, a, not just a matter of mistakes or anything like that. The first thing that it does is it perpetuates the lie that you shall be as God. So this New Age mysticism, it does two things. It omits personal responsibility, first of all, and secondly, it teaches that you shall be as God. You find your, your inner being, your inner God, and we're seeing just a lot of that concept, not only in churches, but in, across the, the world, this New Age philosophy that you shall be as God. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The term and concept and penalty of sin has been diminished, as I mentioned. Most people nowadays would agree that nobody is perfect, but when you say nobody is perfect, that's not really calling sin what it is. It's bold-faced rebellion, bold-faced rebellion against the Creator and willfully breaking His law. So churches have to be very careful. The, the emergent model is based on this. We have to be very careful that we're not wishy-washy on this sin is sin, and, and we want to gently teach that and, and bring it to people's attention if they're not aware of it. I'm not saying we criticize everyone, but sin is sin, and it has to be called that. When I was a boy growing up all over the United States, but uh, we moved from Boston about the second grade down to Mississippi, somewhere in the middle of my second grade, I'd say, and when I, I first heard about God in a general sense in Boston, but I was given a Bible in Mississippi and I uh, started to read it just on my own and was interested in it, things like that. And I, I seemed to be developing some understanding of what God was in a general sense. But I was also going to school and I learned quite a few curse words. And when you put these things together, I was experimenting with the curse words and also I, I found that I had someone to blame which would be God. And I remember one, one time in particular, I was fishing all by myself. It was a little lake that I was able to walk to and didn't have my parents there. My fishing rod got, or my fishing reel got very, very tangled. And I actually used some of these curse words against the Lord. I cursed him to his face. I was so mad that my fishing reel would, would be disrupted like this and it just was dysfunctional and I couldn't use it. I was so mad, you know, I kind of understood who the Lord was and I'd learned these curse words, so I actually cursed him to his face. And then an old man came and helped me and got my reel straightened out, and then I was able to, to fish and do everything I wanted to do. And it occurred to me afterward, even, even years afterward, I still remember that, thinking just how insolent I was that I would actually curse God to his face, especially under a circumstance like that. So we see that it's in us from an early age, and you, you know, as we know, we're born in sin, but that, even while I was trying to figure things out, that really stuck with me, thinking that 
boy, I wouldn't just go up and curse someone I didn't know, and yet I did it with the Lord. Why is that? And I, I was actually kind of perplexed by that for a long time, but I thought about it too, and, and I did apologize to the Lord right after the man fixed my reel. I apologized and recognized how insolent I was, but that's something that I had thought about for years. So that's, that's what's in us. It's not just a matter of making mistakes. The church can't be wishy-washy on this. Sin is sin and it's rebellion against the Lord. So that's the point that I want to make on that. And, and Paul is careful to address any kind of false teaching where it would remove the, the sacrifice that's necessary by Jesus dying on the cross. That's our atonement. That's our, our blood sacrifice, which we have to be covered by that blood in order to enter into the presence of the Lord after death. So Paul encourages and warns the believers to remain steadfast against persuasive words several other times in our 10 verses here. Verse four says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Verses six and seven say, walk in the Lord Jesus, rooted and built up and established in him. And verse eight, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So as we can see, this isn't really this philosophy. It's not really even a cheap substitute. It's a destructive substitute. It's taking away the, the need for salvation. It's, it's giving you another means of salvation, which the Bible does not indicate at all. Verses 9 and 10, For in, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So what Paul actually doesn't do, he doesn't break down every single argument of the Gnostic cult. He doesn't go through, all right, there's no demiurge. Their view of the material world is, is not correct. You know, there's a male, there's a female. Marriage is by God. He doesn't go through that point by point. In other letters, he, he does go through some things point, more point by point, but here he actually doesn't. Although, Scholars do seem to think that he includes the term bodily specifically to counter Gnostic thought, that there is no body of importance. So they do think that's why Paul includes that bodily in there to let them know, yes, there is a body. Jesus came bodily. He died on the cross bodily. He became our, our, our substitute, so to speak. And then he rose from the dead and he has a body. So Paul makes that very clear there. So that, that's part of the emphasis. But also he's saying that there's, or, or the way that he counters this with Christ being in, in you and you being complete in him, almost like he's indicating there's going to be a lot of counterfeits as you, you know, down the road, there are going to be a lot of counterfeits, but Christ dwelling in you with the fullness of the Godhead and you being complete in him, he's pointing out that nothing else is needed. You have the promise of the word of God. So there's no experience, no emotion that can supersede the word of God. Yet we do see churches doing this very thing today. There are churches, Bethel Church, you can see it right on YouTube. Bethel Church has gold dust parties with plastic flakes of gold coming down as people laugh, supposedly in the spirit. You can see these kind of Holy Spirit type parties, which are, are not of the Holy Spirit. Also, they have what's called grave soaking. So you go to the grave of a believer who has obviously died, great people in the faith, and you get energized from that, that person buried there. So these are two things. There may be other things in it too. I hope people see that 
that uh, I hope Bethel Church would repent of this and not do this and that people would see it and actually come away from it. They have a lot of music out there, which is drawing people in. That's great. But you also have to be very careful of the doctrine that's being preached as well and, and their actions as well. So they certainly need to read the book of Colossians. So now we see that the persuasive words has led to demonic activity. Deuteronomy 18.14 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who practices witchcraft or is a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. This is interesting. For these nations which you will dispossess, listened to, so those are those persuasive words. So the nations before Israel, they listened to those persuasive words of the soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. So it's interesting how the nations had actually listened to these soothsayers and, and people practicing magic, black magic, witches, whatever you want to call them. But then that led to the demonic activity. So these nations had given heed to the persuasive words, which led to demonic activity, which then Israel started to listening they started listening to the persuasive words, which also led to demonic activity, which the church is now giving heed to persuasive words, which is inviting demonic activity as well. So the church has to be very careful. The persuasive words are just that. They're, they're dangerous. They're weaponized ideas that, that can draw people away from the truth. Thank God we have Colossians and the, the Bible to guide us. It does make you wonder if the Lord would have been willing to enter into any other relationships or covenant relationships with any other nations if they hadn't practiced witchcraft. It seems possible. It makes you wonder, you know, had they not been practicing witchcraft, if the Lord could at least had some relationship. We know that he had the covenant relationship with Israel to bring about, you know, David and eventually the Messiah. So we knew it had to be one family through Abraham and David and, and the messianic line there. But it is interesting as we see that the Lord was willing to make another nation out of Moses. Jeremiah 18.7 says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant that I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to build and plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit, with which I said I would benefit it. So we know that the Lord can, can have a relationship with any country, even the United States, you could argue, was, was based on biblical principles and have some relationship with the, the Lord, even though not quite as Israel had, but, but you can still follow that same pattern. And you can see that any nation from Jeremiah here, any nation, could repent and at least not displease the Lord as much as they were. We saw both aspects of this really with Nineveh, in the, which is the capital of Assyria. Nineveh repented at the message of Jonah. They turned from their ways. As soon as they heard what Jonah said, they turned from their ways, but they also turned back to their old ways and they were destroyed 150 years later. So you see both aspects of what Jeremiah is speaking of right there in, in, um, in the city of Nineveh. 
We know that the Lord is no respecter of persons. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God and a mighty and a terrible, which regards not persons nor takes reward. This answers our question about whether Paul's words in Colossians are meaningful today. As we know, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Certainly, he could bring judgment to the American or the Western church. I could see him switching and pouring out blessing on the underground Chinese church or Middle Eastern church. He can bless or curse whomever he wants. Uh, Isaiah 19 is an example of that. This is just a little bonus, just to bless you. If you've never seen Isaiah 19 or it's been a while, you'll, you'll, uh, I was kind of blown away from it. I, blown away by it. I love reviewing this type of thing. And this is meant to bless you. This is actually whom the Lord wants to bless. He can bless. This is a bonus for you. But toward the end of Isaiah 19, the Lord says he's going to strike Egypt. But then he says he's going to heal it. Then we see that there's going to be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria to Egypt. So, and this seems to be referring to the millennial reign. So the Lord is going to strike Egypt, but then I'm assuming in the millennial reign, it seems to be speaking of this, both nations will serve the Lord together in the millennial reign. But verses 24, 25 of Isaiah 19, if you want to go look at this later, it says, in that day, shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So that is quite a mind-boggling thing to say, for the Lord himself to say, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and then Assyria, the work of my hands, in Israel, my inheritance. So that is really quite a blessing to see all three nations serving the Lord as one and in unity, serving the Lord in the millennial reign. So what a blessing. I think all of us, there's so many things that we can't wait to see and they're a little mysterious to us now. It's hard to imagine, but that's what it says and that's what will happen. There's no question about it. By the way, I don't see this as Israel's role in the millennial reign being being diminished in any way. Instead, I see the blessing being enlarged to bless all three nations. That's the kind of God that we serve. So he can raise up and he can and bless, or he can put down whomever he wants. The church just has to be careful to keep our doctrine is, is really the main thing. Uh, there's too many verses to enumerate, but we'll be close to closing here. There's too many verses. I just want to read some. I'll go through them kind of quickly uh, just to save time. But there's so many verses, and it, it illustrates how important that unity is to the Lord. We see in Genesis, we see making man, woman in his image. Then we see here in Deuteronomy 6.4, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Psalm chapter 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So you see the father's son there saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So you see the father speaking and the Messiah there as well. Proverbs chapter eight, you see the Messiah as wisdom in creation. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting. Then he goes through the whole creation 
And he says, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, or I'm sorry, not the whole creation, but he goes through portions of creation. Then I was beside him as a master craftsman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. Uh, the next one, Deuteronomy 32, 43, we see all of God's people together. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. So there you see the Gentiles being called to rejoice well before the church was ever formed. That's all the way back in the days of Moses there when Deuteronomy was written. Uh, the next one is John 17. I know you all know this well, I'll read it quickly, but one of the best chapters, really the whole chapter being based on unity, and that's unity with the Father and the Son, and then the believers being brought in as well, those whom Jesus had saved being brought in. Verse five, I'll shorten it just a little bit. Verse five, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself and with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And starting at verse nine, nine, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be as one as we are. Last verse, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be as one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So really much of the chapter is dedicated to the oneness, the unity of the Father, the Son, and believers. Acts chapter four, and being let go, they went their own way, I'm sorry, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They actually go on to discuss Psalm, they talk about Psalm chapter two there, I'll skip that for now. Then they prayed for boldness, they, then the building shakes and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So you see power, you see grace among the early church with the apostles there, many people becoming disciples. You see that the early church had, it says specifically, it says one accord, one heart, and one soul, and grace and power was given to them. Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, many other places in the New Testament, they refer to this oneness, this unity in the Messiah, they refer to breaking down walls of partitions, things like that, you, you know those overall, but the Bible has so many examples and so many things to say on unity, it's important and imperative for the church to maintain that unity as well. So just to review, there's no need of any extra biblical revelations or experiences. These extra biblical things outside the word of God, they tend to lead to 
the formation of cults and, and things like that. Whereas we have the Bible, we can check everything. We can check our own flesh, our own desires, our own, you know, whatever we may be, um, you know, really desiring or wanting uh, or our feelings, whatever. We just have to keep all that in check because it derives from the flesh. So again, no need of any extra biblical revelations. The promise we know is the word of God fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah and the Holy Spirit coming to comfort us for now, remembering the fullness of the Godhead that dwells within Jesus bodily and that we can have commun communion with him. And also it's important to remember the unity shared with him and the worldwide church. Our clo closing thoughts for tonight, uh, the church will need greater unity as we get closer to the end. We cannot forsake gathering together. We are going to take precautions. If there is a second wave of the coronavirus, we will certainly take precautions where we won't be, um, you know, just reckless about anything. Uh, but we also don't want to take it for granted about gathering together. And we look forward to when we can gather together as a church. We'll be as careful as necessary, but also we just don't want to get comfortable with not attending church and, um, and missing out on the fellowship and communion and, and praying together and sharing in the word together. So that's important. And I pray other churches as well would not take it for granted as well, especially in these last, last days here. A verse that can help. Um, this verse helped me regarding the coronavirus and things like this. It's a verse that helped me objectively kind of step back and see what's really going on. I wanted to, to pass it on to you because we're, we're called in the Bible, we're called not to fear. In a sense, we're commanded not to fear as well. And there's one verse that has really helped me not get too worked up about some of these things. Definitely watching, definitely paying attention. It's Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. I like how the ESV reads on this one. It says, do not call a conspiracy all that this people calls a conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. I've shared this verse with a number of believers kind of at the, outs, outs, you know, the beginning of the, um, the outset of the coronavirus and things like that. And the media speaking so much of it, uh, it would be easy to be a little overwhelmed by it. But it's also important to understand what's going on and to take a step back objectively and not fear sort of what the people fear. Don't call a conspiracy what the people call a conspiracy. We fear the Lord. And thankfully that gives us, that gives us clear thinking. We do know that there is one conspiracy in the Bible and we've actually already mentioned it a couple of times. It's Psalm chapter two. So it's the, the conspiracy being the kings of the earth, they take counsel together. Some translations say conspire together. But the conspiracy is this, to, to sort of, in their minds, throw off the shackles of the Lord and his anointed. That's to throw off the shackles of, of God and his rules, Ten Commandments, all that. They want to throw those shackles off. Every other conspiracy, every, all these other things, they actually seem to contribute to that, but they're really part of a bigger picture. And what I mean by that is, is when you see all these things happening in the news, usually there is kind of a component that would be um, contributing toward this, this bigger picture of kicking the Lord out of, out of 
ruling over us, removing the shackles of the Lord, things like that. There, there's certainly nothing against sharing ideas, but we know it's going to be hijacked. Usually it calls for bigger governments, more taxes. We need a world health organization, global government, global economy, global religious leader, a global leader, and then eventually that global leader is going to be a global dictator. So a lot of these things being driven in the media, that's the conspiracy that the Bible warns us about. And so all these other things, I'm not saying coronavirus isn't real. Sometimes it seems kind of hyped to me. I've had quite a few patients in their 80s who got it, and even uh, one in particular who was 88, and her daughter got it as well, who was in her 60s. The mother was 88, and they had some swollen lymph, lymph nodes, and I've had, and, and that's all they had was just some swollen lymph nodes. I've had a number of people that have, that have had it, so when you see what the media is putting forth, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. All I'm saying is it's important not to be carried away with this. Um, I've heard a quote from someone in the, in the media who worked in the media, and he said particularly, the purpose of the media is to teach people to fear and to hate. These are two raw emotions in which you can manipulate people into anything. So I, I, I'd heard that before all this started, the coronavirus and then the, rights and, the riots and everything. I'd heard that, and I did, didn't know if it was true, but I thought about it. But that fear and hate has never been so clear through the media where there was so much fear with the coronavirus, and then that kind of started to wear off. But then you had the riots and things like that, and being, that being stoked by the media, um, things like that, where people started to be less concerned about the coronavirus. So then the, the media brought in hate and really started a race war and a, a class, started class warfare. The point of all of this is CCR, Calvary Chapel Richmond, we need to be united, and the church is not immune to this division. We have to be above this. I would ask that you would please be careful on social media, what you're, what you're posting. If, if you're putting things out there that are whitewashing people and just painting everyone as bad, anything like that, you want to be very careful with that. You don't want to do the media's work for them. If there's something that you want to post on social media and you're not sure and it may offend brothers and sisters, Pray about it, please, and maybe think about it for 24 hours before posting it. For us, we're to build one another up in love, as it states. We're Americans. Praise God for it. We have free speech, but we have to use that wisely. You don't want to put a stumbling block out to your brothers and, or sisters or anything like that, and you certainly don't want to contribute to all the division that is going on. The church, again, is not immune. We need to be indivisible in accordance with the Holy Scriptures. That's why I just read all those verses regarding the unity. To be clear, if, you know, if, they're, if you're careless with this, in a sense, it's bringing sin into the camp. We want to be very careful with this. You don't want to bring sin into the camp. You may be foregoing blessing for your own household, if not inviting actual judgment on your household. But please, don't bring it into the, into the church meaning you don't want to post things about Calvary Chapel Richmond, but then also be posting things that are, that are very careless and, and um, offensive to other people. We need to be building up one another in love. Again, we're Americans and we have, we have the right to free speech. We have to use it wisely. As Paul talks about in Romans, 
we don't want to put stumbling blocks as well. We need to be very careful with that. Um, we're going to close here in just a minute. I'm going to close with some headlines as to why the church needs unity. And again, what I want to emphasize is there's, there's two forms of attack that we see in the book of Colossians. We see the attack of deception, and then we see the attack of division, both of those deception and division. We see both of those being addressed. We see Paul wanting the people to stay together, and he wants them to be strong in the word of God. So that's why everything about keeping the church unified, especially in these last few days. And I decided just to look at the headlines over the past week. So this is all from the past week, and I just want to bring it out as far as why the church needs to be unified and to be very careful in building one, up, one another up in love. But just these are just a few things within the past seven, you know, maybe a week and a half, something like that. In the U.S., we've had gang warfare in multiple U.S. cities. As the police step down, then the gangs are coming in. I think Chicago had about 100 shootings or something like that, and uh, over 10, about 10 fatalities somewhere there, and a number of them were children. Uh, Michael, number two, Michael Jackson's daughter is producing a movie portraying Jesus as a woman of an alternative lifestyle. Jesus himself is going to be played by her, who actually is a woman practicing an alternative lifestyle. I'm sorry to even bring that up. You just wonder what other world leader or world religious leader would they do this? Would they make a movie like this? And it's just hard to imagine, but that's, that's the world in which we live right now. Also, if you're following them, massive locust plagues in Africa, the Middle East, and these are moving up into China. It's interesting, a Christian brother pointed out the areas where that have the locust plagues actually are areas where they heavily persecute Christians. So it started in Africa, it's been up in the middle, they've been up in the Middle East and then moving up through China as well. Now there's a plague in South America, just a huge locust swarm um, from that has moved from Argentina up to Brazil and it's around South America. So, so that is really something to see. These, these locust swarms are just of biblical proportions, really. And that's the mainstream media using those terms as well. There have also been rumors of war, India versus China. I'm sure you've seen that. But then also India, Pakistan, Turkey did something as well. There's so many of these things, I can't even keep them all straight. Uh, but Turkey was also uh, acting aggressive as well. So there's just so many things to keep straight. I, I can't even remember what Turkey did. Uh, also, torrential flooding in China, threatening the China's, has one of the largest electrical producing land, dams. It's not the largest dam in the world, but it, at one time it produced the largest amount of electricity. But they've had torrential, almost cataclysmic flooding there due to, due to the rain. I think it's called the Three Gorges Dam. And so uh, there, I guess there's about 400, peop 400 million people at risk from this. And if the dam breaks, who knows what will happen. But all of these things, I'd heard China had a food scarcity trying to feed 1.4 billion people. I had heard that anyway. But then if you factor in flooding and war and locust plagues, it's going to be that much worse. And so uh, really just amazing things happening in our time. The last couple, this, this is definitely an interesting one. This is one to watch. I had a trip planned to Egypt in September. I was going to take David with me. We were going to go in September. 
And I was, I was not sure if I really wanted to go. It, it ended up being canceled due to the coronavirus, virus, which I was really thankful for. I, I probably would have gone, but I didn't really want to go if you know, there was going to be so much social, social distancing and if sites were going to be closed from the coronavirus and all that. So I was really glad that the decision was made for me. However, just yesterday, uh, one of our employees came up to me and she asked if I was still going to Egypt. And I said, no, nah, it got canceled with the coronavirus. And she, she's Middle Eastern. She has friends in the Middle East. And she said, good, don't go. She said, war is brewing in Egypt there. And, and I had actually just last week, I'd printed an article regarding this on Alma, almasdarnews.com. So I don't watch mainstream news for the most part, except to be critical of it. But I don't watch mainstream news, generally speaking. So I try to look at things internationally. And this website had, and, and now other websites as well, are talking about potential war brewing between Ethiopia and Egypt. And this is very interesting. And it's something that I've, I've been watching for a while. But she warned me saying, don't go. War is brewing. They have friends over there, and, and it's not a good situation. So I'm thankful that it got canceled with the coronavirus. But a little bit of a story with this was that quite a few years ago, I would say about seven or eight years ago, I was reading Ezekiel, and I was in Ezekiel 28, uh, 29 and 30. And I, I remember kind of getting on top of myself, and I was like, boy, I'm just I'm going through this. I'm glossing over it, but I'm really not studying what these terms are. There's so many places. I'm really not studying it. And I need to get better about that. I really need to understand what I'm studying because Ezekiel has some, you know, some very in-depth sections. So it, it takes study. You have to really be intentional about that. So I remember taking my finger and I just kind of was like, I'm going to, I'm going to find one place here mentioned in Ezekiel and I'm going to study that place, whatever it is. And I'm going to just really going to know it. So my finger landed on the Tower of Syene mentioned in, mentioned twice in Ezekiel 29 and 30. And so I started studying it. And interestingly enough, the, these sections talk about, they mention Egypt and Ethiopia specifically. Some, some translations say Cush for Ethiopia, but, but some, our translations say Egypt and Ethiopia. So it's mentioned specifically. And it talks about it like Ezekiel 29 verses 9 and 10. And the land of Egypt shall be desolate and waste. Behold, I am against thee and against thy rivers, and I will make thy, the land waste from the tower of Syene to the border of Ethiopia. So if you want something interesting, you can study Ezekiel 29 and 30. So I had, I had studied it a bit, a bit back then, and I, I found that some people think that what's mentioned as the tower of Syene might be the Answar Dam in Egypt, but it may not be. I, I don't know. Definitely not an expert about that. And this has been about seven years and this has all just come up recently. So it's something I want to look into if you want to as well. But it's, it's very interesting. Whatever this mysterious tower is um, seems to be important. And then this conflict between Egypt and Ethiopia, which just started brewing last week, what, what's happening, I guess Ethiopia wants to build a dam, but that's going to limit water flow to Egypt. And so, uh, but Ethiopia has actually already started build, building it. So they're kind of at a point of no return. And Egypt recognizes this, so they are building up militarily as well. So both sides are preparing. Ethiopia seems to be charging ahead with that. So anyway, seven or eight years ago, I, I kind of studied it and thought, I studied the Tower of Syene. 
And then soon after that, our family went up to see my parents up in Delaware, and they have a big library. They love, love history and things like that. And so I remember I, I just happened to choose just randomly a National Geographic out of all kinds of books and magazines and stuff. I just happened to choose a magazine from the 1960s, and it was talking about the building of the Answar Dam there in Egypt. So really fascinating, and I was like, wow, I can't believe that. So I don't know if the Lord is trying to tell me something. I still don't know. I, I don't want to say anything positively. I'm, I'm not certain about it, but it's a great story and something that you could look at. And, it's, and of course, we pray that war doesn't break out. And I'm not saying all of these things are going to happen. Hopefully, tensions will settle down across the world. We, we don't want that. What Historically, what I'm seeing, though, is tension had a way of building up before the previous two world wars, and eventually something does happen. There's a, a bit of a spark that ignites all of, this, all of these things and all this tension. So that's kind of what I'm seeing, but this could go on for another 20 years. It's, it's hard to say. But anyway, that's, that's that. Even the mainstream news, the Express, UK actually put article an article out, but they actually have other questions about this too. Other articles questioning, this was the title of it. It said, are we living in the tri tribulation period of Jesus Christ? And it actually somewhat kind of went through biblical stuff and actually questioning with as bad as things are, volcanoes here, famine, locust plagues, coronavirus, wars, rumors of wars and all that. They actually talked about that as well. So it's amazing. Even when, when you see the mainstream media actually questioning things, it's, it's definitely time for the church to, to be paying attention, but also to be unified as well. So let's keep our families and our CCR church, let's keep our family united as one family so that we can represent the, word, the Lord well. Our closing verse verses, Psalm 46 verses Four through six. So this is this is what we're aiming for. The very end, when the Lord has made all things right again, this is this is what we have to look forward to. We want to invite other people into the presence of the Lord, into a saving relationship with Him. Psalm forty-six, verses four through six. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And then tying that in with Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Let's go before the Lord, please. We thank you, Father. We thank you for Paul's letter to the Colossian church, Lord, to people whom he had not even met, and yet he wanted them grounded in the word of God, and I pray that we would apply that today as deception is so strong today, moving through the spirit of Antichrist, Lord. So we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit through us, into us, and through us, Lord. Let us reach other people with the good news, Father, and we pray that you would unify our church, Lord. If we have been careless in this area and offended brothers and sisters, Lord, let us repent of that, let us make it right, Lord, as we have 
Lord, we have so many examples and so many verses encouraging us to be as one, Lord. And we look forward to the day when we are united with you and we're, when we're together as a family. But until then, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us. Bless our church family, Lord, and be with us, we pray, and help us in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.